But we're going to come to our reading now and uh, I ask if you've got a Bible and you want to follow this to turn to the end of the Gospel of Matthew and we're going to read chapter 28. We're going to read all of chapter 28 but it's not long and um, we're going to have some good stuff from this chapter tonight through David, I know. And I'm really looking forward to that. So if you've got your Bibles, do follow this as we read through chapter 28 of the Gospel of Matthew. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, probably the mother of James and John, went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. We listened to a sermon recently where somebody suggested that that stone could have been anywhere up to two tons in weight. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so terrified, so afraid of him, that they shook and became like dead men. Quite consistent with other accounts where people saw angels in scripture. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met with them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they will see me. The guards report. While women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are right to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. The Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. May God give us his understanding as we study this passage. Thank you once again for your warm welcome. Thank you for David's leading the first half of the service so well. Enjoyed that. Thank you also for that choice of, those choice of hymns. They're absolutely super. It's very brave of Roger to ask me to speak on uh, this uh, passage, this subject tonight, the resurrection. Normally, as a travelling preacher, one only gets asked to talk on the resurrection at Easter time. But I think that's a pity. The resurrection is so fundamental, so vital, and yet so misunderstood. So it's really good that we got this subject before us this evening. Just one little word I'd like to clear out of the way that might have occurred to somebody as uh, David read the passage. I can only remember one uh, talk, one lesson from my school days at RE classes. It was an afternoon period at, uh, I suppose I was in my early teens at at grammar school, and uh, the teacher came into the room and said, I want you to get out your rough books and write down what happened in assembly this morning. And we had a traditional school with, you know, we marched into assembly and we went through a, a, a form of service there. We sang a hymn and had prayers, a reading, and uh, then no announcements, and we all had to march out again. Pretty, pretty typical from that, that era. Uh, and he asked us all to write down what happened in assembly that morning. One boy put his hand up, Sir, I'm a Catholic, I wasn't in assembly this morning. So another boy was detailed to take this lad outside and tell him what had happened in assembly that morning. Uh, and then write down what he'd been told. Well, after we'd all been writing a little while, we had to put our pens down and read out, some of us had to read out what we'd written. And you would not have believed we were all in the same assembly. <laughs> And then everyone's account was true. You know, they all saw it in a different way. And the boy that had been told about it, again, it was uh, with a different perspective. Now, it may have been, as we read that, you might be a little confused and say, well, how does this match up with what Mark tells us, or Luke, or John? It doesn't matter. They're individual people, and we put the whole collective thing together. We don't use these detailed differences in the Gospels as a stick to beat the Scriptures with. Because they're different people and each bring out different aspects. And God is a God of diversity. <laughs> Look at us. <laughs> Look at me anyway. You know, isn't it wonderful? We're different. And so are the gospel accounts. They put together a total picture. So it just struck me as we read through this, in case anybody is querying the differences here. Don't. It's John's perception, and he had a different relationship with the Lord and a different way of looking at things. We, uh, not John, Matthew here. And we thank God for each one of them. I just like, It's a big subject, uh, but I just feel we ought to look at three points tonight. The first two we'll deal with fairly quickly. The third one is where I think we really need to to, to spend some time. The first point uh, is going to be uh, the dawn of a new era. That's what we're going to call the first point, the dawn of a new era. The second point we're going to call Lord of all creation. Lord of all creation. The third point, I did wonder about the title, I'm going to call it a sure foundation. The resurrection is the foundation of our Christian faith. 
and we'll have another little reading from 1 Corinthians 15 when we get there. Uh, in that third point, I want to argue through our belief in the resurrection and why we believe it, and how we can be sure of it. But let's look at these first two points. <coughs> first of all then, excuse me, <coughs> the dawn of a new era. After the Sabbath, we read verse 1, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, went to look at the tomb. And of course we think, well, that's the beginning of the day. Well, for many of us, it is the beginning of the day. Isn't the dawn getting uh, later and later at the moment? And the, day, night, uh, day, uh, the mornings are darkening. Uh, it wasn't to these people. It's halfway through their day. It wasn't the morning. Well, it was the morning, but it wasn't the middle of the, uh, the uh, beginning of the day. You see, to the Jews, their day started at six o'clock the previous evening. Their twenty-four hour period was from sunset to sunset. Jesus could have arisen any time after six o'clock the previous evening. We're not told when he rose. We're certainly not told that he didn't rise to the dawn. Could have arisen any time during the night. Uh, and when they came to the tomb, it was the middle of the day to the Jew. We forget that. Why, just incidentally, did the Jews reckon the day to be from sunset to sunset? Well, simply because that's how God made the world. Look at Genesis chapter 1. The evening and the morning were the first day, and the second day, and the third day. And they kept to that in their view of the 24-hour period. The day starts with the coming of night time. And there's a lovely thought behind that, you know, that uh, in God's purposes, the way he's designed things in a fallen world, we get the night before the day. We get the darkness before the coming of the light. Weeping may last for a night, but what comes in the morning? Joy. Joy. Joy cometh in the morning. We may sow in tears, but we reap with rejoicing. And that lovely Jewish idea of, first of all, you have to do the hard work or endure the suffering and go through the darkness because it's going to lead to a much better day. And so when the realization that Jesus was alive burst on his followers, it was at the dawn. What a dark night they passed through. And uh, not knowing. They couldn't do anything. It was stark. <laughs> and uh, the previous day had been the Sabbath anyway. And so here they are, the first opportunity, but they're in the middle of the day. They've passed through the night of doubt and sorrow, of fear. Uh, and, and it was the beginning of the daylight half of the day. And that's when they realized that Jesus was alive. And in our experience, when we realize that Jesus is alive, we're only at the dawn. It may be we've passed through darkness in our lives. It may be we've had experience of all sorts of lifestyles and terrors and sorrows in our experience. And suddenly when we realize there's a new hope because Jesus is alive, there's a new birth, there's a new beginning, it's the dawning of a new day, the dawning of a new era. And we've only got the glorious day to look forward to. We've got newness ahead of us. There's a sense, you know, in which all of us here tonight, we're still at the dawning. 
we don't yet see perfectly. Some of us were talking about that verse in 1 Corinthians 13 this afternoon. We're only at the moment, because it is dawn, we're only seeing through a glass darkly. You know the dawn is one of the worst times to drive the car? <laughs> you know, the shadows, the lights, the you're not quite sure of the reality until the fullness of the light comes in. Maybe some of us here tonight are very conscious that we're in that in-between stage between the night of difficulty and uncertainty and doubt and confusion. And we long for the fullness of the light to burst in upon our spiritual experience and to see the Lord in a new way and to enter into a fuller experience of the Lord. Well, we're all heading in that direction. Because there's always going to be a certain element of the dawn about life here on earth for the Christian. Until we look upon his face and we see him in all his glory. We're at the dawn. We're at the dawn of a new age. We're at the dawn of a new part of our experience as creatures made by God in his own image. We're at the dawn. There's an uncertainty, and some people may feel that uncertainty. Look at what happens in this chapter about that uncertainty. Uh, we see it both in the women and, and the disciples. Verse 8. So the women hurried away from the tomb. Uh, look at this. Afraid, yet filled with joy. <laughs> there's, there's, there's an uncertainty going on there. There's, there's fear and joy, all mixed in together. It's something that happens at the dawn, a little bit of the night, a little bit of the darkness, all mixed in together. A little bit of fear, and yet, somehow, there's joy coming into it as the light gradually gets better. I wonder, dear Christian friend, is, if that's your experience tonight, there's a growing joy in what the Lord is doing in your life and what he has done for you, and yet there's still some fear. Does the Lord really love me? Am I really doing what he's asked me to do? Am I really where he wants me to be? That strange dawn time experience of a little bit of the fear of the world and yet the joy of the kingdom all mixed in together. You see, we're at the time of the dawn. The day, the fullness of the day, the wonder of the light, the total perfection of our knowledge hasn't yet dawned. But it's getting brighter as we move closer and closer to the Lord's return and to our coming into his presence. So it may be you have this strange dichotomy. A little bit of fear, a little bit of joy. That's the human condition at this point in our experience. A little bit of the night, a little bit of the day. Uh, And the disciples felt the same way as well. We read about that in verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. (laughs) We worship the Lord here tonight in a lovely way. Very gentle, very beautiful through lovely words and music we love and through the leading of our prayers we've worshipped the Lord uh, but there may be one or two here with still some doubts don't be afraid don't worry <laughs> the strongest Christian has moments of doubt we may not doubt necessarily our doctrines or even the reality of the Lord but there's certainly doubts as to what he's doing in our lives sometimes and whether we're following the way we should be Maybe there's some of you here tonight to worship, and yet there's little areas of doubt in your Christian experience. Some of you may have bigger doubts. Is all this real? What are these people on about? How can I trust them? How can I trust religion after all that's it's done in the world? There may be some genuine doubts here tonight. Dear friend, we want to draw near to you in that mixture of worship and doubts, because you're human, you're natural, and we understand. 
we'll deal with some of them and we hope as we go along. And so it's the dawn of a new era. We're at that part of our total experience where we pass through the nights of uncertainty, maybe worldliness, maybe areas of sin in our lives which we totally, totally feel ashamed of. The darkness of the night. But now there's a new dawn. <laughs> the Lord has risen. He's done something about it. There is newness ahead of us. There is total perfection that awaits us. The best is yet to come. The night is far past. The day is at hand. And the Lord wants us to enjoy the dawn of a new era. But the second uh, little point we're going to deal with very quickly, Lord of all creation, we have this in verse 2. There was a violent earthquake. But just look if you have your Bible open back at verse, uh, chapter 27 and uh, verse 50. And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, this is when he was up the, uh, on the cross, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs. I'm not going to go into the theology of, uh, of these people being raised, but it's the earth shaking. <laughs> I wouldn't have liked to have lived in Jerusalem at that time. There were three days difference, and earthquakes going on all over the place. What's happening here? Well, it wasn't only an earthquake. The sun was dark for three hours. That wasn't an eclipse. And I suggest from the, meaning, uh, from the writing in Scripture, it wasn't even a black cloud. The Lord is Lord of all creation. And this event, this great event at the center point of human history, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, wasn't just to give us new life and a happy feeling, it was the beginning of the redemption of the whole of creation. The whole of creation which has been subjected to the bondage to decay. Second law of thermodynamics, if you want, the law of entropy. Uh, and, and here, there is the beginning of the newness for the whole of creation. That's what scripture tells us. That one day Jesus will breathe new life into every atom throughout the cosmos, and death will be no more. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And uh, the whole of God's creation will be renewed. Indeed, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, he says the whole creation at the moment is still groaning. It's, it's eagerly waiting. It's redemption. It's newness. When this bondage to decay, the death principle that has come into God's creation, will be removed and it will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. No wonder the creation moves in empathy as the Lord of creation, the one that spoke it all into existence, the one that brought about every atom of DNA in every living being, the one that created everything by the word of his mouth, the one who sustains it all, when he should deign to die on a cross and then rise again, the whole creation is in empathy with the Lord of creation. Not only... Did it have its upheaval at his death and his resurrection? It's going to have his uphe- its upheaval when he comes back again. And the moment he puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, there's going to be another big disruption in Jerusalem. <laughs> We're told the whole mountain will split aside. But then something wonderful is going to happen to the whole world, we read in Zechariah 14. 
that somehow the whole world is going to be transformed. It'll be a unique day, known only to God. It'll be a day without the sun, without uh, cold or frost, because it'll be a day when God enwraps the whole earth in that newness, ready for the glorious millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Zechariah 14, I think it's verse 9, verse 7, somewhere around about there. So the whole creation is in, is in empathy with the Saviour. Isn't it good to be reminded he's Lord of all creation. Jesus is Lord of all. All authority has been given to him. But then I'd like to come on to the third point, which I'm going to call a sure foundation. And we'll sort of hang this on these verses from verse 11 uh, to 15. Uh, we've had them, uh, David's already read it to us, but um, we have these, uh, this, this plan that the chief priest devised. Uh, and uh, they paid the soldiers a sum of money, we read. You are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. <laughs> what are they doing asleep? The Roman soldiers, they should be on duty. And then they say, if this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him, which obviously means a backhander, and keep you out of trouble. Well, I wouldn't have taken that as any guarantee. And then we read, so the soldiers took the money. I bet they did. Um, While it was on offer, they may be about to lose their jobs, if not their lives. And it goes on to say, this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Many years ago, I think it was before the Second World War, certainly before my time, there was a very, very clever London barrister who hated Christianity. He was a very anti-Christian man. Hated the legacy of Christianity in this country. Uh, A very self-confident man. And he took a sabbatical from his uh, law practice. And he decided that he would like to uh, write a book to totally demolish the idea of the resurrection of Jesus. And he imagined, he wasn't the first one to do this, that if he could totally demolish the Christians' certainty in the resurrection of Jesus, he would demolish Christianity. Now, Paul argues that in 1 Corinthians 15. And he said, well, if Jesus hasn't risen again, then we're all wasting our time. And uh, we'll read that in a moment. So he said, if I can prove that Jesus was just an orderly man who died an orderly death, and that was it, then we're at the end of the Christian era. So he took his sabbatical. And he started to do his investigations in this country, in the Middle East. But the further he went on his researches, the less sure of his own position he became, and the more sure that he could not argue against the resurrection. Indeed, he became so convinced that the resurrection must have happened that he became a Christian, (laughs) got converted. He wrote a book. Uh, The book he wrote wasn't the one he intended to write. The book he wrote is called Who Moved the Stone? Some of you have read it. Frank Morrison. That's his testimony and that's his story. A Christian classic. And he discovered that the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely sure. Let's just read before we consider this point a little bit more. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 then, because I think this is so important. Um, I'm going to (laughs) read, it's a long chapter, I'd love to read it all, but I'm not going to. Here we start at verse 1. 
1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers, I will remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter. In other words, this is of first importance, the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He goes on to say, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, uh, but he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. You're able to say, you're allowed to say, hallelujah. (laughs) So, Paul is so, so central. He puts the resurrection so central in the Christian thinking, and so do we. This whole issue, if you want to read a good defense of the resurrection, there are other books more up to date than Frank Morrison's, but let's think of three evidences for the resurrection. Three very important evidences. The first one is this. That the people who went right through the ministry of Jesus, through his death, through the resurrection and onto the establishment of the church were changed people. Totally changed. And they didn't have any grief. Now, if you and I lose a real loved one, we've all been there. If we lose somebody that we really are close to and we love dearly, how do we react to their passing? And it may be weeks, months, years before we get over it. It's a normal human condition. So what happened to these people? That one moment, a man like Peter can be swearing and denying he ever knew Jesus to a little servant girl. And the next moment he's up before the Sanhedrin saying it is more important that we obey God than you lot. Something tremendous had happened to them. Total change. And it wasn't just one. It was a whole lot of them. Absolute total change. There was no grief. The second evidence that we just think of this evening for the resurrection is this. There was no shrine. And when somebody dies, whether it's their body or their ashes, and of course in those days it would only be bodies, but you you, you mark the place of their their resting place. And, And maybe we go to visit it. Put flowers on the grave. 
or look at the book of remembrance in the, in the crematorium, whatever. It becomes a place of memory. Uh, for some it may become a place of pilgrimage. It becomes a focus. And yet, right throughout the New Testament period in Scripture and also in the secular history books of the day, there was never any record of vast quantities of people going to remember Jesus at any spot at all. There was no shrine, no place of remembrance, no place of pilgrimage, no place where they had laid a body. And don't tell me that somebody would have known where it is. (laughs) You know, you can't have that number of people who would have known where the body was, if there was a body. And it didn't get out. It would have become a well-worn place of pilgrimage. (laughs) People have even made money in recent years over trying to speculate where the body is. (laughs) Well, they've made money, but there's no body. No shrine. Very powerful evidence. And the third evidence we can just think of is that there were many, many witnesses. We just read it. Over 500 people at one time. I mean, in the seven weeks, is it, that Jesus was here on earth after his resurrection, before his ascension, he was seen by hundreds of people. In fact, that's the force of Paul's arguments to the Corinthians. You see, these were Greek people with philosophy. And oh yes, they become converted, but they're still holding on to some of their Greek ideas. Oh, the dead don't rise again. And so they question that part of their Christian teaching and, uh, and, and belief. They're having problems with that. And Paul says, it is of first importance that Jesus died and rose again. It's the foundation of the whole of our faith. But don't just take my word for it. Most of the people that saw him in the flesh, when he was alive, are still alive now. When he was resurrected, are still alive now. Go and ask them. And I'd suggest to you, and even in a modern court of law, 500 witnesses, first-hand witnesses, would be more than enough. After a few of them, any judge and jury would say, we've seen enough. And so there were these tremendous numbers of witnesses. Three great evidences that something fundamental happened and it wasn't a burial that lasted. It was a resurrection that had taken place. But secondly, let's look at possible alternatives to the resurrection. What other ideas have been raised? Well, the one we just read out, that we're hanging uh, our thoughts here on. The the, um, story that the soldiers were meant to peddle and to to promulgate. Uh, And that the soldiers stole the body. Sorry, it's not the soldiers. It's the disciples stole the body. That was the soldiers. Uh, that was the soldiers' story. That the disciples had stolen the body. Well, first of all, the disciples were a weak, whimpering bunch of people at the crucifixion of Jesus. They couldn't even organise themselves, let alone uh, to actually defeat uh, a platoon of twelve soldiers, move a two-ton stone, break a seal, at risk to themselves if they were caught, and then take the body. I mean, Jesus wouldn't have done it. So it's a stupid story at all. They, they just wouldn't have got themselves organized. They would have given up, gone back to Galilee. Some of them did afterwards. Uh, but even if the disciples did steal the body, we're back to the point about where's the shrine? Where did they lay it? <laughs> you know, somebody would have known. They, they, if they'd stolen it, they would have put it somewhere. It would have become the place of pilgrimage. Uh, but even more importantly, if the disciples had stolen that body, 
would they have been prepared, all of them, to die later on in their lives for a lie? If they knew Jesus wasn't risen, but they knew he was dead and they buried the body or disposed of it, but then they stood up and were absolutely persecuted to death for their belief in the resurrection of Jesus, surely they would have crumbled. They wouldn't have stood, they wouldn't have uh, gone along with it, under persecution, under torture. They would have given in if they knew it was a lie all the way along. That Jesus wasn't risen, that he was dead and his body was somewhere. So the idea that the disciples stole the body doesn't really stack up at all. Some have said, the second of the possible alternatives to the resurrection, that the authorities stole the body. Well, they could have uh, organized that, I guess. They were in charge of it when he was put in the tomb. Uh, but wait a minute. Whether we're talking about the Roman authorities or the Jewish authorities, both groups of authorities hated the new Christian era that dawned. They didn't like it one little bit. The uh, sudden explosion of belief in Jesus. <coughs> and how could they have killed it right at the beginning if they'd stolen the body? They could have produced the body. They could have said, you lot are talking about Jesus risen? <laughs> you are, here's the body, we've got it. We dispose of it. But they didn't. Because they didn't have any body to dispose of. Because they hadn't taken the body either. As far as they were concerned, it was in the tomb. The third possible alteration to the... Uh, um, the, the, the third possible alternative to the uh, resurrection is the idea that Jesus didn't really die. You may say, well, who on earth believes that? Well, the Muslims do for a start. Muslims do. The idea there is that, well, the Muslims actually believe that at the very last moment, Jesus swapped it with Judas Iscariot, and it was Judas Iscariot on the cross. That's what they believe, but whatever. Uh, the, the, the sort of idea that's come from, from time to time through history is that Jesus was a very, very strong character. Had a tremendously strong physique. And that uh, he, he didn't really die, he, he went into a very deep level of unconsciousness. And that in the cool of the tomb, he gradually revived. And that he didn't die, that's what they believed. But let's examine that. Think of what injuries he sustained. This is a di- difficult, but we've got to face the fact. This was what Jesus went through for you and for me. And there's anyone here that doesn't really believe in our Christian message. We're telling you about a saviour who did this for you. A crown of thorns rammed on his head. Great big long thorns. His whole skull would have probably been bleeding profusely. And maybe even suffered brain damage, humanly speaking. His back was lacerated horrendously. Think of the loss of blood from that. Then when he was so weak he couldn't even carry the cross, he was taken up and the cross, I understand, would have been laid flat on the ground and he would have been positioned on top of him. Nails through the wrists and just above the feet. Or uh, some people say just uh, uh, somewhere else on the legs. But the loss of blood that that would have occasioned. And when it came to... The soldiers who were wanting to get off duty that day, thinking, well, we better hurry up and get rid of uh, these three people, they were amazed to find that Jesus was already dead. (laughs) 
these are soldiers, professional killers, Roman soldiers. They would have known a dead body when they saw one. But just to be sure, one of them thrust his spear into Jesus' side from below, up on the cross. And out came blood and water. It pierced his heart. And so the argument goes that he still survived <laughs> with all that loss of blood and so on. All right, well, let's say, let's say that may have happened. So he's now in the call of the tomb. And with that tremendous loss of blood, with it sealed so that there's no food, there's no water, and there's no air for three whole days, he manages to summon up enough strength to roll away a two-ton stone from inside through a little tiny aperture where the stone was much bigger than that, completely naked, because the grave clothes were still there, and somehow managed to over- overturn 12 soldiers, presumably go off into town and buy some clothes. I mean, the whole idea is ridiculous. It just doesn't stack up at all. It's good for us to realise just how daft these arguments are. Jesus is alive. He rose again. And whether it's the soldiers being paid money to peddle lies, to their own cost, maybe, or whether any of the other philosophies down through the years, our Jesus lives. He lives, he lives. It's interesting, when Dawkins wrote his book on the God delusion, the one area of Christian thinking that he dared not touch was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He didn't mention it in his book at all, because he knows he's turning on very, very dangerous territory if he does. Now, try to argue against Christianity and, about the, uh, and against the existence of God uh, through science and so on, but they will not touch the resurrection. And it's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ this world has been changed over 2,000 years. It's because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that there's the possibility of you and me tonight having a new life, of coming out of the darkness, of sin and despair, of just living for self and bound with all the things that this world throws at us into the dawn of a new era of love and joy and peace and life and holiness and godliness and the knowledge that we will see him. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. (laughs) And you can't say that if he's dead. He's alive. We shall see him as he is. I just want to... uh, I've got several other points here, but my time is gone, and I don't want to uh, uh, overburden you with with stuff tonight. I'm just going to mention one of the implications of the resurrection for you and me, and it's in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And the argument goes that, okay, accepting that Jesus is alive, accepting that we can have a new birth, a new beginning, resurrection life within us, resurrection power... Then, if Jesus has done all this, and it becomes ours just by trusting him and asking him into our lives and saying, yes, Lord, I believe you died for me, and you rose again to give me new life, and and you're going to renew all things, and you're going to one day renew my body, and I'm going to be an eternal creation, uh, and that's all good, then if that's all guaranteed, Lord, surely I can go and do as I like now. (laughs) And Paul's addressing this point. In Romans chapter 6, and he says this, what should we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? (laughs) No. So he's addressing the issue of what sort of life we ought to live as Christians 
in the knowledge of the resurrection. And then he says something, he says, remember your baptism? And I'm going to put it in simple language, uh, just, just for the sake of time. He says, can you remember when you were, uh, when you were baptized by emotion? Because this is what they did in those days. Uh, and uh, it was a picture of what had happened to you in Christ. As you went down into the waters of baptism, you signified that in Jesus you are buried. You went under the water. You died to self. You're buried. But they didn't leave you in the water, did they? <laughs> Brought you up again. So also in your baptism, you signified symbolically that not only are you dead to self, not only is, are you buried in your old nature, but you're risen as well because you're identifying with his resurrection. And then he goes on to say, if this is true, he says, verse 8, Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died in, to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to, the, uh, to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. In other words, he's saying in simple language, you have resurrection power in your life over sin. He didn't say you're going to be perfect, not in this world. But he did say you have a power within you that comes straight from the resurrection of Jesus. And you symbolize that when you come back out of the water again, waters of baptism. You have a power living within you that can look temptation in the face and say, I will not give in to that. Whatever it may be. When we find the weaknesses of our own character, maybe the tendencies to tell lies or to deceive people, maybe the tendency to have bad thoughts, immoral thoughts, when we find the temptations of seeing other people begin to lead us astray, when we have the temptations to go onto the internet, onto sites we shouldn't be on, or to watch television programs we shouldn't be watching, or to read books and magazines that we shouldn't be watching, we have the power to say, I will not go down that way. We have resurrection power in our lives. Hallelujah. We have the power to overcome, the power to fight, the power to say, I'm dead to sin, but I'm alive under God through Jesus Christ. Now the world can't say they got that power. For the world, sadly, the truth is often the case that the older you get, the more entrenched we get in jealousy, bitterness, unforgiveness, pride, arrogance. The older we get, the more these things just stick to us, sadly. But in Jesus Christ, we can be released. We can live a new life. We can be a new people because we have resurrection power in our lives. One of the great implications of the resurrection of Jesus. As you enjoy your resurrection life in Christ, it's a sure foundation. It's a foundation for all we believe and all we hope for. When Paul is talking about the return of the Lord Jesus and the rapture of the Christians, with our bodies suddenly rising and being renewed, and that's a big subject of its own, I'm not going to enter there. But he says so, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, As Jesus Christ died and rose again, so we shall rise. The guarantee of our future resurrection and eternal life is the resurrection of Jesus. 
If he didn't rise again, you and I won't rise. If he did rise again, and I've tried to show you some pretty strong arguments for believing that, if he rose again, we too shall rise. I'll see you on the way. Lord bless you. Amen. <laughs>